Welcome back, everyone. I have Dr. David Morehouse uh, again. We're going to talk about uh, a, I think, a fairly intriguing topic. This earlier this week, there was actually a congressional panel on the UAP program. I think it was uh, to, uh, May 17th, and today is uh, May 19th that we're recording. Um, in, in kind of independent of that, but related, as part of the remote viewing program, there was um, something called extended remote viewing. And there was a process that sometimes remote viewers would go off-world and explore off-world targets that sometimes led to the realization that it, you know we're not the only ones in the universe. So uh, and David, could you talk a little bit more about yeah. um, what you mean by off-world, kind of the off-world historical record and things like that and, and what that meant? Sure. Uh, I guess first to discuss why and who would initiate something like this. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, program managers were kind of the supreme rulers of those uh, of the unit. And so if program managers had interest in UFOs or alien life, and put yourself in that place, if you had interest in those kinds of things, and you had a bunch of remote viewers. But you need an excuse, though. You need like an official rationale to get these government resources. Not necessarily. And I can't, I can't say whether there was or there wasn't. I don't right. know. Uh, and I, I would not put it past somebody to just make the decision that I think I'm going to start doing this. I mean, I, that could happen. I mean, you have no way of knowing whether this was an official right. or not. Or just somebody's morbid curiosity. It, precisely. And I mean, I don't think that happened a lot, but I think that anybody that had that kind of an interest who had this military intelligence collection tool sitting in the office in front of them every day, uh, if they didn't have some other operational target they're working at the present time, why not? I mean... Yeah, I mean, if you had spare capacity, you might as well use it. Yeah, I mean, every day we went in there, we were not working operational targets. Now, if you weren't working operational targets, which you don't know if you're working or not, you look on the board and it says, you know, Morehouse room one or whatever it was. And, you know, at from 1300 uh, to 1500. <laughs> so, you know, okay, well, I've got a session going on that time. And it might say monitored, it might say solo. Uh, I was very quick to just go to solo. I didn't want people talking to me while I was doing it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it would, that was how you found out. Now, you could go into the program manager, knock on the door and say, hey, <clears throat> what's up? What am I, you know, anything you want me to know before I start or anything else? If it was a double blind and he, had, he knew nothing, he would say double blind. I have no idea. If it was blind, meaning I was going to be blind and he knew, uh, he might say nothing again. Uh, he would never say anything to front load you. Like, Oh, well, you know, make sure you take some mittens in. This is going to be cold. <laughs> say right. something like that. You would never say anything to, you know, he might just say, well, how are you feeling today? Okay. All, All right. right. You tired? No. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay. Uh, yeah. You've been doing well on your targets. You know, I've looked at your work, uh, calibrating you and you're kind of on the upswing. So yeah. Uh, let's do some challenging things. Okay. Yeah. Yes, sir. You go back over and, you know, you get ready for your time when it's your time. Now, how did I know that these were 
you know, off-planet targets. And, and this is how you know that. <clears throat> you first, you end up being given a coordinate that is slightly different. It has, seems to have like a, an older format. Like when we do coordinates in training now, for me at my company, we do 2023 and it will do the month. And then it'll always be zero one. Why? Because we want to end the last digit of one because it facilitates an ideogram. But these did not look like that all the time. <clears throat> and they were old. If you were, if you saw the target folders, they were old, dog-eared. And they were thick, most of them. So I don't know where this process began. <clears throat> Excuse me. Exactly. <clears throat> But I know that I started working targets. And the first one that was done was the moon. <clears throat> so you start describing, you know, moonscapes and other things. But you, as a remote viewer, are learn you learn are trained not to. You're trained to forget the name of what it is you're looking at. Your job is to dissect everything. Mm -hmm. So. You know, you don't go, you might say AOL moon. If I go back to, you know, who decided to do this, it could have been any one of the program managers, but I do know that on multiple occasions, which is how I discovered this, you know, I was being given off-planet targets. I know this because the feedback was being provided as an off-planet target. So when I would do a session and I, you know, my first one that they gave me to was uh, one of the lunar landing sites. <clears throat> so, you know, the platform that stayed behind, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there was one of the targets that I was asked to do that Gabrielle had me doing, on which, the, which was one that I saw an astronaut, I sketched an, like an astronaut form <clears throat> laying on its back, feet up. <clears throat> uh, I did not know what that was. And they, I declared it as AOL. And in the analysis of the target, I was told that it, had, it was AOL and it was not target data because there were no astronauts laying on their back. They were all standing up doing what they did. And I was looking at a site that was now vacant, right? <clears throat> I described, you know, the angularity of certain things, escape, the, you know, the terrain, the, the soil feeling, the textures, et cetera. And after it was all over, <clears throat> the feedback to me was a lunar landing site. One of, it was one of the last lunar landing sites. I don't know what a mission that was. <clears throat> and my feedback was uh, a, you know, a photograph, a copy of a photograph of that site, which I thought that was a good session, as did Gabi. And uh, I thought, well, great, you know, you're, you're extending the boundaries. I'm not just looking at stuff on the planet. I'm now looking at other stuff. <clears throat> to just continue that part of the story and then j jump back to other planet targets. Some 40 years later from that session, I, I find that there, is a, that there is actually an astronaut at the place where, where I saw it. And it is called the fallen astronaut. Are you familiar with that? 
No. Uh, there is a sculpture that was left on the, uh, in that last, at the landing site there, in that last one. Hold on, let me, let me pull it up here. Oh yeah, there we go. Stanislav Sulaski was the sculptor. <clears throat> it's three and a half inches tall. It's made out of, out of polished, brushed, polished aluminum. Uh, it takes the shape of an astronaut. It was left there by the mission commander uh, next to the lunar rover with a placard that dedicated that site to all fallen astronauts, both Soviet and US. And <clears throat> there were lots of intangible aspects that came out of this target, like you know, artistic and monumental, but a lot of conflict stuff, a lot of you know, other things that were being attached to this site that remote viewers are capable of detecting, decoding, and objectifying, which I was clueless as to why those things were coming up. And the judge, you know, the evaluation, not judgment, the evaluation of the session as a training set, although successful, was you got a lot of data that does not apply here, right? Going through this thing, uh, like artistic and, you know, and sculpture or conflict and stuff like that. <clears throat> so 40 years later, I find out that there's, there is actually a sculpture there. And it was hidden by NASA because they were really pissed off because the crew are given a PPE bag, personal something, right. bag, which is quite small, only allowed to put stuff they're going to carry up there, uh, personal stuff in that bag. The rest of it is, you know, calculated in grams for the weight load distribution, right? Because after all, you have to lift this stuff up out of the gravitational pull of the earth and get there and, and then get back. So carrying, you know, extraneous items along that you have that are not on the manifest is a gross error and, you know, punishable by, you know, lots of bad talk and you'll never do another mission again. <clears throat> and the mission commander who did that one, I find 40 years later, got his ass chewed and, you know, and they carried this, this little statue up there. And they were kind of doing it part because they wanted to put a monument up there. But also the little, the sculptor who was really hoping for recognition for having done this, this thing actually destroyed his career because he was deported from the United States. He was deported for that. Deported back to his, uh, you know, his home country, which was Eastern Europe. I, I, I'm not sure exactly where it was. Polish. It was Poland. Yeah, it sounded like a Polish name. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was ruined here because he participated in, in this thing through a, a cutout, you know, kind of a broker guy that was doing it. Because why? Because after they released the information that this little sculpture was up there on the moon, they had already mass produced a whole bunch of replicas of that sculpture, which of course they were going to sell. And then that all became, you know, the catalyst for you're out of here. They deported him. And of course, then they went and found out all the other crap that these uh, astronauts were carrying up there. And do you know why they carry it up there? <clears throat> do you know why Gus Grissom in the movie, the right stuff? Remember the guy that was playing him 
was talking about these diamonds, this, I mean, uh, the role of dimes that he was going to take up there. The reason oh, is because the stuff is solid gold when they come back. There is an entire counterculture of people that buy space stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gloves and helmets, you know, and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for some of this stuff. I mean, crazy, crazy, right? And to have, you know, to have a replica of that baseman, they would want that to have the other stuff that that mission commander carried up there, which was, I can't remember the exact number. It was something like 500 to a thousand envelopes that were all, that were at all been uh, postmarked from, from the moon. And it, he, he carried them up there, went to the moon with them and was going to go back and sell them. This envelope went to the moon with me on my mission, Apollo, whatever it was. Right. And so when NASA found this out, that this was kind of going on, I mean, I'm sure there was a little come to whatever meeting where they dragged all these astronauts went and like, don't ever do that again, kind of a thing. But yeah, so I felt, you know, venerated to know that my astronaut laying on its back that I saw uh, 40 years earlier uh, was actually there. You know, it was, it was part of that target. They just didn't know at the time. That made me feel good. <clears throat> I'm very sorry for Stanislav for having to, you know, go back to Poland because of what happened. Anyway, next, uh, you know, weeks go by, maybe months go by, and uh, my trainer. I don't think she was actually my trainer anymore. I was actually kind of I was, I was what was called operational, which means you completed your training. You were now using. They were using you on real intel targets <clears throat> but occasionally uh a target would be pulled and that person would go over and put the target on the podium and uh and then sit there but say nothing but they you always had to have you either had to have a target tasking sheet or you had to have a folder and they didn't want to give a remote viewer the folder because a remote viewer might look through it you know and come back with a really fantastic session. So there was always a way that, you know, what you were doing was kind of buffered from the viewer themselves. Uh, that target might've been pulled, brought into Fern, who would type up a target tasking sheet, say your coordinates are, and, you know, give those, give those to you. You carry that over there and you just put that on the table my and look at it, my coordinates are. You'd fill out your heading, coordinate, ideogram, and there you go. The, the next one I did that was of significance to me was um, the caverns, the, uh, the lava tubes. I was describing these massive circular uh, openings with, uh, with, with frozen stalactites and, and stalagmites that were like crystals. And uh, I, there's a, I sketched this huge structure that was in a giant cavern, you know, a, a massive, like a, like a city, like a civilization, but of an unusual kind of architecture. Uh, and I, I sketched life forms that were present there, you know, in scale to that, this stuff to give it some scale. This was stage six sketching. And my target feedback was Olympus Mons. <clears throat> and Olympus you said you, you said you observed life forms there. 
Well, yes, but that doesn't mean they're there. That means if what if the structures I am, if the structures I'm perceiving were created by a life form, then uh, my ability to, in the event arc of time, right, uh, to to sort of pick up aspects of that would have been possible, uh, or. I could have just seen, you know, what I had sketched in terms of a building and how I perceived it. And maybe I perceived it with life forms and I, or I thought I should, you know, put them there for scale. I, I, you don't know as a remote viewer right. exactly why it's there, but uh, your assumption of course is that, and it's an AOL, you know, a massive city underground life forms present. That's your AOL. And you declare that because you don't want that to drive the rest of the session. If you don't declare it and you accept it as something uh, or you don't declare it and truly let it go and you get back into the session, the next thing that happens is you're, is that again, or a piece of that or some version of that. So you have to be really careful in dancing with the structure about how you're developing the data uh, and following the structure so that you don't allow AOL to drive the session, any piece of AOL, one piece. <clears throat> there is, so in doing all of that and going on with it and my, because as a visual perceiver, primarily, I was sketching, you know, the aesthetic, the aesthetic data, the aesthetic dimension of this thing and putting, you know, a, a habitation place that was centered in this, that was massive. It was like a, like a, like a small town, maybe. Right. And I, when I say small town, I mean, like, like a small town, like uh, Albuquerque, you know, something like that. Right. Not that big, but it, there was a lot of structure that was present there that I tried to capture it with my best in stage six. <clears throat> the, the feedback was this was Olympus Mons, which is the largest volcano in the solar on, system. Right. <clears throat> on, on Mars. And the whole, in years later, when talking about these lava tubes, because I don't even know that there was in the 80s that there was an understanding of lava tubes there. So it was just kind of passed off in the feedback of your descriptions of colors, your descriptions of these kinds of things was, was interesting. And oh, by the way, uh, it coincided or, you know, uh, it was the same similar data developed by other viewers who have done this target in the past, which uh, you could be given that folder. And you would now look at all the other Mars sessions that somebody had done on that target. And your file, your results, your session, your summary would be added to that folder. And it was called a historical folder. So what are they looking for? Because they can't give you, they can't give you feedback, right? They can't right. give you what it is. They don't know. So they just use the, the, the correlating data that multiple viewers over periods of time develop relevant to that particular target. Okay, so now <clears throat> we now know that data correlates from multiple viewers over multiple times on the moon. Uh, we know that multiple viewers correlate data uh, in established patterns, repetition over years or months and working as targets. So now, uh, what stops us from going further? Well, well, nothing. 
So now, if you're if if the person you know driving this particular train really wants to fully investigate Mars, then that's what they would do. There would be a new concept of a target with a new set of coordinates, and that may have already been done ten times, maybe more, right? And those coordinates now that that becomes another target that they work. And then there becomes another target that they work. And I know there's one that's out there now uh, that, you know, a lot of people reference, which is this Mars visitation where there's a, there's a life form there that. Uh, yeah, I think that's Sidonia, I think was where the target was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've read that. I actually thought it was Pat Price. You said it was Joe McMonagall uh, because of the dating on it. Uh, and, and very well could have been. But clearly, that's another monitored session. And if you're reading it with a critical read, you see where the monitor is steering, right? Mm. Steering this viewer, which is why I really never liked nor felt that monitored sessions using that technique were credible. Uh, I, I won't know whether that's right or wrong until we actually put, you know, do a manned mission to Mars. But I know now that that there is... A, you know, in again, looking back to your session back then when there wasn't a lot of feedback available and looking at it now, which is what viewers always need to do, is looking back on it now, I know that, you know, the major plan for a man missing to Mars is to go into these lava caves. Why? Because you're, you're protected, you know, from mm -hmm. ultraviolet, you're protected from sand and wind storms, you're protected from rock storms, you're protected from meteor meteorite strikes, uh, it sounds like there's water there based on what your description of the they they highly suspect that there is water there which which they are you know preparing in the training processes if there's water there it means that you can you can you know melt it filter it you can use it to grow food you can use it to sustain life and you can make rocket fuel with water right the hydrogen so all of that is important for them to know. And so, yeah, describing, describing things that are cold, that they, you know, AOL stalactites, uh, AOL stalagmites, uh, look like crystals, uh, cold, you know, uh, rigid, hard, you know, everything that you, that you start perceiving and writing down becomes, at the time, worthless because we don't have any feedback. But now, looking back, we, it's good feedback. It, it meant something. Now, we also know that we didn't know at the time, but in these, in these giant lava tubes where lava has flowed underground, is that, or it's been a top ground and as it cools, the, you know, it creates a shell and it keeps going through it, is that these are, quite, these are really massive. I mean, these are, these are hundreds of meters, some of them you know, in diameter, and some of them not that much. But some of the caverns that they see there, there have been now reports that they estimate that some of these caverns could easily be the size of the island of Manhattan. So uh, that's when, you know, some they get in there and there's a, apparently an atmospheric bubble as the, you know, the lava goes another direction or something and something expands it and you get these giant caverns and then it goes elsewhere. Uh, it, to me, in looking at it many, many decades later, it was always fascinating to see that kind of thing. Now, <clears throat> looking at the dark side of the moon, that was done. 
looking at various landing sites in the moon that was done did they find anything on the dark side of the moon that was interesting no no nothing really no and and darkness does not affect a, a remote viewer if the intention of the remote viewer is to is to see in you know natural light or something then they would report darkness or dark shadows or sh you know shades of gray because how a viewer sees how i see as a viewer um i've always described it to people as it, it's kind of like looking through broken green glass uh it's not a video image rolling in front of you uh it's always kind of fleeting can twist and turn I think the best example of how a viewer sees is to go to the movie Minority Report and look at that, where they're pulling up the images that are come from the, what do they call them, precogs? They pull mm -hmm. those up, right? And the images are broken, fragmented, pieces, some close in, some far apart, but they start putting them up and trying to assemble them, right? That's almost like a stage six sketch. They're putting it up and assembling it, and they're going, got this, got that, and they can't tell what it is. They have to look for you know, pieces, evidences in it to try to determine what it might be, a partial number, a open door, you know, a swing set or something else. That's what allowed them in that, in that movie, which I thought was probably one of the better remote, unintentional remote viewing movies that had ever been made. I mean, it honored, it honored all of the rules, not 100% accurate, didn't expect it to be, right? Never trust the results of one precog operating independently of other precogs. That was the minority report. They always went with the majority on it. Uh, all of those things, right? It, it all fit the rules. It always used in consonance with other modalities of investigation or investigative modalities. So in that case, they had other things they did with it that they pieced together, their own intelligence, uh, uh, et cetera. It was a good remote viewing movie and the visuals that were there were like looking through broken green glass. They don't have a defined edge. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're changing, they're kind of moving, they're sliding around. That's how a visual, uh, at least me, that's how I see. I, I, can't, I can't say how uh, another visual viewer sees. I can look at a sketch, right, and say, but you saw, I showed you evidence, some, you know, some of that today where you got to see how some people might see it very clearly, but how they, how they objectify it on the pages becomes quite pedestrian, right? And others of them perceive it and then are detailed, analytical in their sketch, right? Where it looks like a pen and ink drawing, right? It's fantastic. And then there are others in between that. So Visual viewing was always the objective, <clears throat> but not everybody started out that way, as I shared. Uh, intention governs the how you create balance and that ability. But I would get an image, and I was good at, at uh, non-analytical sketching. And how I got good at that was at, at BYU in a biology class. I uh, it could have been biology 101. It was very early on. And I remember I had this old professor who was a real stickler for scientific sketching and scientific record keeping, that kind of stuff. And what he did was he made us look at slides, you know, the standard uh, bill of fare of dyed slides, you know, different like onion 
uh, cells yeah. and other stuff, fixed slides. Uh, and so those would be handed out. Each, everybody would get, you know, like three of them with a rubber band around them. And you had a microscope and you had a lab notebook. And so the objective was to put a slide under and then to look with, you know, with dominant eye through the single barrel and then without looking at the book, at the page, to sketch what you see. That is how you become non-analytical in your sketching. And what his objective was that as a scientist doing things like that, that as soon as you take your eye off the barrel <clears throat> and you start filling in the sketch, that now he didn't use terms like analytical overlay or anything else. He said, now you're imagining what it's supposed to look like. You're calling on memory and imagining what it's supposed to look like. That, I mean, that was amazing, right? That a guy is calling it that <clears throat> in the 70s when I'm at university. And then so you started off really bad. <laughs> Things did not look like they were supposed to look like. But as you trained your brain to engage with your hands to sketch, you, it got better and better and better. And you'd go to a different slide and, and get better and better and better. And once we had done that, uh, by, you know, like say Tuesday, we spent our entire uh, class time, lab time doing that. And then so Thursday, back again, this time, different slides, stereoscope. So now you've got a stereoscope and you're looking both eyes in. Don't take your eyes off. You sketch what you see without taking your eyes off of, you know, off the microscope. And that was my first exposure to something called non-analytical sketching. Uh, there's a really good book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which must be in its 35th printing now. Uh, that was one of the books that was at the remote viewing unit as well. And it's a really good book to teach you non-analytical sketching. And I've seen it improve remote viewers sketching uh, like 20 fold. It's, I mean, a, a powerful book. I recommend people get that. The other exercises that they would do there is in the unit is they would put up a paper, an easel with paper on it, you know, that what you used to call butcher paper. And you would put your, if you were dominant right hand, you put your right shoulder forward of the easel. So you could not look back and see what you were sketching. And then your trainer would put something like a coffee cup on a table in front of you. And your objective was to draw that coffee cup without looking. <clears throat> and again, it would start off as something not of this world by the time you finished it. But then you would practice and practice and practice them. And then when you accomplish that, they would put a different object. Why were they doing all this? Because they wanted you in your mind's eye as you are, right? As you are detecting something in waveform and your conscious mind is, a, is decoding it and you are visually perceiving it through that detect-decode process that your ability to objectify it rapidly and without imagining what should be there was critical to the process of being a good remote viewer. So <clears throat> that's why they were doing that. And back to these sessions of things that you're seeing, that's, that's how a visual perceiver would turn around and sketch those kinds of things, put it down there. So now the qu next question is about, so did we ever go deeper? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> My evidence of being there said, yes. Uh, one of the targets that I did, two of the targets that I did, uh, <clears throat> were called 
open search outward. Okay. Now, what did that mean? It meant that uh, we could take, you, you could figuratively take the known galaxy of which, in which we reside, and you could take that, or you could take the known universe, <clears throat> which is now known as a finite body. Uh, it, it has an edge to it. It began from something that's been expanding outward. It's not infinite anymore. There's an edge. There are even mathematical calculations that depict the edge of the universe. I love that idea. I'm not disappointed in the fact that it's not infinite because if it came from somewhere, where did it come from? And if it expanded into something, what did it expand into? Right? Those are, those are thoughts that really intrigue me. So if you just take our galaxy and you were to take the concept of that galaxy and use a Cartesian system for dicing it up, right? All 100x, 100y, 100z, right? And, and they were numbered one from 100. You could say, pick something or go after something you were really interested in. But the, car, the way in which that became an address for a, con, for a concept of a target, it could be something like, you know, X52, you know, Y48, Z, Z20, you know, something like that. And that then would, be, would constitute the concept of the target mm -hmm. and the mind of the individual assigning a coordinates to it. So the coordinates get assigned. Now, remote viewers, blind, take the coordinates and start. The theory was simply this. You threw four viewers out there. Even if you put them out there at different times, it was, it was analogous to a shotgun blast, right? Out into the Milky Way to this concept. And somebody would hit something. Somebody would get into something. Somebody would find something. Because not only was there an address there, but there was kind of this concept elaboration that went with it that said, you know, something should be perceivable. Uh, that became an, an addition to the concept. So now viewers go out, and if all four people come back with scrambled eggs, I mean, nothing, you know, interesting or usable, then I, you know, they would, they would prop, they might, they'll keep everything, but that target becomes inert at that point. So right. they might try it again weeks later. These were not things that were done systematically day after day, week after week, because remember, there were real operational things that were ongoing there. And some people were being also doing training targets or also calibration targets, the same thing. And then there were these things being slipped in. Uh, <clears throat> and so the, all of those things, those things would happen. And during that stuff, and these open search outwards, I can tell you that some of the targets that I uh, was on that I hit, that when the feedback came in and I looked at the historical data, mine correlated with that. And throughout my entire time of teaching remote viewing, when I was teaching it from like 96 to 2005 and you know picking it up again and stuff, I will typically at certain points in time, depending upon the class or what level the class happens to be, I don't give it to coordinate remote viewers. <clears throat> but I will punch in those those historical targets again and and collect the data from thousands of viewers and correlate that with where we started back in the unit and see where it is what's evolved into now. 
this, it just gets more elaborate and better. And I will tell you why. It's called morphic resonance, right? It, it is the process of ritual and morphic resonance, a hundredth monkey effect. You know. mm -hmm. um, essentially, what this means is that each new generation of viewers gets better than the last. They pick up in a, in a, not in a literal way, but in a figurative way, they pick up where the other generation left off. And I can honestly say that the viewers that are, that are trained now, got my gosh, the viewers that have been trained since, you know, since probably 1998, that the level, the, the rapidity with which they learn the protocol and the accuracy and just the capabilities that they demonstrate so quickly and so efficiently, they are better viewers now than any of us ever were back in the unit. And I don't have any problem saying that. And anybody that disputes that from the unit, don't forget, I saw everything you ever did. I saw everything you ever did. And so that's why I'm making that statement. I see viewers now that are absolutely flat out astounding in what they're capable of doing. I mean, and they move quickly. They, they graduate quick. I mean, they, they get better and better so fast. It's amazing to see it happen. And because I think there are a lot of things, the morphic resonance, uh, but I also think, you know, this cult, this collective unconsciousness, the ritual structure, uh, which is so important to humanity. And also, there's also the idea that there's so much information out there now. Uh, the feedback is so much better. I mean, to sit down and look at a 25-minute video of a target you just did, right? That's a powerful experience. And then to get something that gives you quantifiable measure attributes, attributes, I'm talking fast now, all of the, you know, pick photos that accompany that, I mean, good, high res, you know, color photos in the embedded in the, in the, uh, the document you get. It, it's so much more elaborate now, and it's so much better feedback that it propels viewers fa faster and better than they ever could have back in the days when, you know, half the time when you did an operational target, you didn't get any feedback on it. Or maybe you did later on, like six months down the road. Finally, they close out that target and say something about it. But it was never immediate feedback in, in operational targets for the most part. And the feedback given to you was minimal. And you were relegated to, you know, going to the library and trying to find what you could find in the library that might help answer what it is that you did. So it's easier now. There's so much more ability to, at the speed of electrons, you know, access something and read more about it. So I think that's also contributed to the learning process that's ongoing. But we found... Uh, there was once described by the viewers a, 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 a target in an open search outward that every, the majority of the viewers that were there described it as like standing in a stream, like against the stream and standing in the stream and seeing elements like moments, like snapshots uh, of time going by them. Uh, and it, they would be there. This was one that was ended up being called, uh, kind of nicknamed the, the cosmic web. So people were standing in this thing and how many people saw it, how they interpreted it, were like literally like little 
like little strips of you know film playing or like televisions this remember now that's not what's going on right. <laughs> that's it's just not a- what that, this is just the conscious mind you know interpreting what it's see what it's perceiving in a in a using a four-dimensional language right a lexicon so it creates something it, that it it knows fits but it could be completely wrong and it is in this case but what that came to the viewers in more significant ways was the fact that this was like a capillary system in the universe and it was moving it was moving uh it was moving like memory or moving energy or moving you know one a number of viewers over years came up with uh one guy very powerfully what came from tasmania and he said it's like it's like a capillary system establishing balance between good and evil in the universe, like light and dark in the universe, which that's figuratively, right? That's a, a human right. being interpreting something that it, up till that point, even science had not discovered. And then probably 10 years later, on either the cover of Scientific American or somewhere inside of Scientific American, they described this thing called a cosmic web, you know, showing it in an artist concept of, you know, this fluorescent cloud of stuff that is constantly moving and in flux and which is, uh, you know, a theoretical system for balancing things. I mean, the universe is a living, breathing organism, and we are discovering more about that every day in science. And this, to me, to see them do that, to see it correlate to old, simple sketches, now they are much more elaborate. And then to see now science coming up with new discoveries, that, you know, it substantiates what they're doing, what they were looking at. Not not 100%, never will. It's not expected to. But the sketches match very closely what the artist's concept was that was made it into Scientific American with the, with the study. So there's that. <clears throat> there are there were other uh, outward search, uh, open search outward uh, targets that brought you to alien life forms. Uh, so was that was the thing that'll bend your mind around it is okay. So are you saying that that particular alien life form sat there at the control panel of that vehicle, uh, which is a large. <laughs> All that things moved in and out of for it controlling, and it was this giant, you know, being that was standing there, much larger than humans. And this is long before any of the, I don't know, you know, like something. I don't like anything like uh, what was that movie where the the last Prometheus. The, well, it's the extension of it, but it was Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. I mean. This was decades before Prometheus was even, you know, ever created or thought about. And they were describing beings like that or similar to it with facial hair and that stuff. And it has every time I've used that target over 25,000 students, those who got to that level, same stuff. Now, again, I was trying to say, don't misunderstand what's happening here. This is a captured moment in time. This is an event arc in time captured from a waveform expression of itself. This is not the alien staying in this place, this life form standing in this place over decades uh, for viewers to come and see. 
So it's, a, it's an event arc of time that is a, now locked as a concept. It's something that came through the moment, like a moment for you. And now it, it goes off to be another potential. But could you access that? Could you go back and access that potential? Yeah, of course you could. Some people do it all day long and never let go of it for years. You know? But you could deliberately go back and access that. But it is, it's not part of your reality now. So you're supposed to let go of those things. It's just a potential. Mm-hmm in time again now somebody else may bump into it or their moment or if you work hard enough at it it could circle back around i guess and you could step into that you know a near identical you know potential that you know that reflects that again but doing it in the remote viewing sessions going back you're just looking at that event arc of time and uh do you want to see what an event arc of time looks like yeah yeah quick quick question yeah. Did you ever see any alien civilizations that disturbed you? Uh, well, they're all to a certain degree fascinating and in being so fascinating and so foreign, they are disturbing, right? Um, I didn't see anything that I was afraid of. Uh, but there were a lot of things that were clearly clearly unusual and difficult to process and understand you know what they were and where they came from that's for damn sure uh and but you understood also your you understand things like they weren't taught in the unit but i teach them the students which is you have to understand that nothing out there is more powerful than you right nothing out there is more powerful than And so if nothing out there is more powerful than you, then you don't ever have to be afraid of what you might run into. You need to understand that nothing can overpower you essentially unless you let it. It's a decision that you make. It's a choice you make to either be compromised in that way or not. And that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to comprehend, but it is a true statement, as true as I can make it. And to see civilizations, there may be, I know I, I, in the original manuscript that went to St. Martin's, <clears throat> I know I described some very, very, on occasion, some really dark, you know, really foreboding, uh, malevolent kinds of places. It certainly is not all uh, just curious and loving and you know, open and waiting for human intervention. I can assure you that. Um, I I also can tell you that when those kinds of things were, you know, were stumbled upon, they usually, if they were, if they developed that kind of emotion in viewers, they were usually not ever done again because it wasn't worth, you know, kicking that can down the road. And there were enough things that viewers were being asked to do that could, you know, uh, could, have an effect on them emotionally that that was not one of those things that needed to be done. So does that make sense in the process? Yeah. They weren't interested in really, you know, if they found something or reports came back, viewer had a bad session. Sometimes even if the viewer had a bad session, it didn't correlate with other things. It goes back to, as I shared with you earlier, that every viewer can respond to things in, in a different, slightly different way. We never know what the internal emotional filters are of viewers. And male viewers might respond one way, female viewers another way. 
female viewers who are you know, very religious or sensitive in some way or have had some horrible experience that has scarred them in some way, you know, detecting and decoding the waveform expressions of that thing in the blind and then suddenly, you know, a sense of it. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> in the last CRV uh, class we taught, which was just two weeks ago, uh, one of the last targets was in a particular place. And in that particular place, there was a, a male Hispanic life form that was there, had a beard, big long goatee, and he was working. He was doing what he had to do there. That's what he was doing. It wasn't some drug lab or something. Don't worry about that. But one of this uh, uh, viewer who had done it once and then came back again, uh, started crying as she was describing, you know, what her experience was there, that this male form, she perceived it as remote viewing, this male form came to her when I said, well, what did it look like? And she said, it was nondescript. It was just, I could sense this entity coming at me and I sensed that it was male and it just came and, you know, it went on its way. Now, if you look at this guy that's in the video and you look at her ex-husband, He's a very famous, famous guy. It's like twin brothers. So the either the dimension, the texture of this guy, the, the look of it, even though the mind is not describing it as in that way, because she was seeing it as this shadow entity coming her way. She went through a horrible divorce with this guy and other things. And so what happened in that example is that I guess the resonance, which could have been simply appearance or background, right? Both being Hispanic or the, the, how the, the phraseology that he used or his tone of voice, that those things were enough to cause what is called, it's called an aesthetic, I mean, a, an emotional impact in her. And so there's actually a method, uh, there's a, a way in the structure that you declare the emotional impact and objectify what it was. And if it's significant enough, you put your pen down, which is, and you write a time, that's called a, a symbolic gesture to terminate signal line contact. So what you're trying to say, your conscious mind is stop showing me that. Don't, don't roll back and repeat. I don't, I'm not interested. And then when you're ready, you feel clear enough, pick your pen up, write resume in the time and get back into the session. But that is called an emotional impact. And you have no idea perhaps why it's there. Uh, until when you see the feedback and then it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, you know, that's what she was doing. Oh, oh I got it now. I understand. Uh, so every viewer can perceive, you know, other people were happy to describe this guy in a hoodie, you know, with a hard hat on. And, it, but another person, it impacts in a way and you never know. And there's no guarantee you can't ever you can't ever sanitize every target you might give people. So you have to always be understanding that sometimes what's in the target viewers just shut down. They, you know, there, there's some sort of a switch that goes down like a blind or a filter that goes down that says, don't look at this. Don't, don't perceive this. If you want to be good as a remote viewer, you have to learn to let that go. You have to listen to what I'm saying. Nothing out there is more powerful than you. No, nothing out there is going to hurt you. But how do you know that? I know that. I, I know it based on my experience of being there. I know that the greatest weapon that that kind of stuff has is confusion and fear. 
Uh, it's not you know, physical domination over you. You're a remote viewer. You're detecting, decoding, and objectifying waveforms. I'm not saying that if you, you know, got sucked up or abducted by that life form that you could overpower it. That'd be a different situation, right? Right. right. Uh, but in terms of being a remote viewer, uh, how what you're doing is detecting and decoding waveform. You're not, you're not in present. craft out there, you know, 150 million light years away. That's, that's not what you're doing. Remember, those waveform expressions of those things travel by every possible path. And it means that when omnipresence means omnipresence. So you're just right here now detecting and decoding and objectifying. Now you could call it, you know, coincidence or imagination if you chose to do that. It would be if you understand where we come from and what we talked about today, uh, that would just be that would just be mean you're part of the two percent uh, that deal in absolutism of nothing uh, and have that belief and are, are going to stick to that belief. But uh, let me show you an event arc of time so you kind of understand uh, what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> see share let me see if i can get this to get bigger there you go so you can see this right here <clears throat> yep okay it starts with this kind of a concept here going back uh here to the moment let me get that to change going back to the moment in the equation reflecting the moment now, what it's saying is that in this moment, that there are things going on on every axis here that constitute a single event in time. And so how that event arc of time comes out, it can be, it's like this. And it also, I'll, I'll go back to this one, but I want you to see this. So it is saying that each potential that comes through here, each potential, that each one of those has within itself another event arc of time. They are separate points of time, but they have an arc. And what that's defined as, okay, look, here, this event arc of time is reflecting the RMS Titanic. And it is the concept of the target in this example is the moment ice strikes metal. That's the concept of the target at 11.40 p.m. on that night. But all of these things here are, each one of these arrows are taking one single axis right here, and it's mm -hmm. saying, okay, along this axis, what causes, what brings it to this point, right? At the event arc of time, at the, at the actual target concept, strike ice. What leads up to that and what follows after that become part of the event arc of time? And what you're looking at here is simply not each one of these arrows in this very busy uh, slide is one string of potentials. It's potentials, but decisions made in the moment by individuals, by these individuals selected are only crew members. Okay. So the depiction here is how does the one moment, one person's moment, their reality, how they're dealing in their reality, how does it resonate and cause others to resonate with like decisions in the moment, right? That's the point here. 
is that this was not just a something that happened five seconds before it hit the ice. This is something that an entire cascade of moments by individuals causing other individuals to to resonate in the same you know at the same frequency in the same moment. I mean, in their individual moments, it shows you how something like Captain Edward Smith down here at the bottom <clears throat> at 8 a.m. cancels a scheduled lifeboat drill, right? <laughs> he cancels it. And at 8.01 a.m., a coal fire is still burning in bunkers 9 and 10 on the starboard side. And it started weeks before while loading coal for the maiden voyage. So it's had this slow burning fire on the starboard side, which was the side where the ice struck. And it's been burning in bunkers nine and 10. There are photographs of discoloration before they left Southampton on the starboard side. So that becomes another, so that is something that Smith knew about and dismissed and told others not to worry about it. And so that sets into motion, right? Because of how he's resonating, his decision to stop the lifeboat drill, cancel that, don't worry about the coal fire, we'll figure that out at sea. We have a schedule to keep that, how he's resonating in that moment causes you know, the next person, the iceberg warning is received on the radio at 5.30 p.m. Okay, the next thing, you know, 550, Smith alters course, but he increases speed, right? It just keeps on going down here. You can follow all of these back where you get this another 940 yeah. p.m. Uh, this other ship sends another iceberg warning and it comes into the radio room and it doesn't go to Smith or Smith dismisses it or one of the other captains uh, don't Smith. Here's one at 945, Jack Phillips, the radio operator who actually died. Uh, doesn't pass this warning to Captain Smith. Why was that? You keep going down here, each of these individual moments, all of this in this giant arc of time here, and we're only talking about nine different people here. Nine different people and what they do in, in their decision processes in the moment and how one affects the other, affects the other, affects the other, right? Like, Right up here, right before it really gets bad, 10.55, only an hour after the radio operator does not pass a warning to Captain Smith, the Californian radios them and says, there's a lot of ice and we are stopped and surrounded by ice. That message does not go to Smith. In fact, one minute later, as the message comes across, Phillips, same guy down there, radios, shut up. I'm working the Cape race, which is a big race back in the UK. Why was he doing that? Do you think that this little guy came up with that on his own? No. Some officer who was being affected by the leader, how he was resonating, captain, a first officer or a second officer or a third officer came in and said, get the damn race report so we can send that to people. That caused a fatal flaw in the system where this young man tells the people warning him that they're surrounded in ice and they're stopped and maybe you should stop as well, disregards that because he's been told to get the Cape race results. And it just 
keeps on going. You start to see these things over and over again until it gets right to the point where ice is, uh, California turns off the radio, Smith, you know, then it comes into here. You've got the lookout, Reese, sees an iceberg, but even more importantly is back up here somewhere. Oh, at 10.07, the lookouts report, but the bonus that they're supposed to have them in place so they don't go up with binoculars, right? <laughs> See what I'm what's being depicted here. Now, in that event arc of time, you could grab any passenger and there'd be another event arc of time. What they heard, what they didn't hear, who they were talking to, who they were fighting with, um, et cetera. You follow what's going on here? It means that the waveform expressions of this, these kinds of targets, even though the principal element of the Gestalt is the very moment that Titanic struck the ice, there are events that lead up to that and there, the vent arc of time and the concept of the target stops the moment the fantail of the, of the Titanic drops beneath the waves of the North Atlantic. That's when the event arc of time stops in that concept. So you can see how, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And if you were to add the complexity in the, in the axes of every time a decision is made on that, on that event arc of time, there are lateral decisions that are made. It affects laterally what goes on. It also, there are decisions that are made that affect vertically and, and down. And why each one of those axes reflects, uh, reflects different people affected by people in leadership, people responding to leadership, people following leadership, people, right? You understand where it, where it goes? Yeah. It, it, it's a complex gestalt and it always is uh, so a remote viewer who's looking for just this event arc of time that meaning the target concept the rms titanic strikes ice can drop down can start perceiving stuff right in that moment but they will also very often start to perceive things back you know along this event arc of time it, it's fair to go back minutes hours not days, but minutes and hours, and forward and backward in this thing, and down below and up above to all the other things that are affected. I guess what, what I'm trying to show here is just uh, that how each person resonates in the moment has a direct effect on those around them, and how they present, how they are existing in the moment affects people close to them, people who work with them, people who work for them people who rely upon their, in this case, passengers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it just cascades to where it takes the life of what, 1,500 people? Interesting concept, yes? Yeah. It's like, uh, it's kind of like a, a, a stochastic properties, right? Where one event, you know, has some probability of outcomes and it's amplified, you know, if it, if the outcome turns out to be the um, uh, most dangerous outcome is probably not the right word, but the most catastrophic, I guess. Yeah. Right. It's like a risk the old risk assessment matrix matrices, right. You used to do those, right. Where it had probably like, you know, I, know, I don't know. I forget what they call it, but it was like probability. And then um, ampli amplitude is not the right word, but uh, it's kind of risk on one axis probability that would happen and then impact basically. So you wanted to make sure you avoided the high, you know, 
highly negative impacted events that are higher probability. Exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, if you, do you wanna go along this line or would you like me to segue into something else? Another. Um, so let's, there's, there's one question I had about the off-world historical targets. Did you ever get the sense that whenever you were, you know, whenever you were viewing entities, that they were aware that you were viewing them? Uh, it was one of the most common perceptions that viewers have, is uh, that they would be aware, but indifferent, uh, indifferent. Uh, and it was, I mean, viewers would get a scattering of, a, of emotions around something like that, but the, the, the most prevalent description of it was, you know, were you, was it aware of your presence and the response? You know, they didn't go into the target with that. I'm just asking, saying in the feedback, I would say to them or in a small group where they're sharing their session, I would say, what would, was this life form uh, aware of you? And because I, I know typically what the answer is going to be. The answer would be yes. And, and did they attempt to interact with you in any way? No, they absolutely appeared indifferent. And that, that's what would happen because you're looking at something, right, from a historical perspective. So you're basically, it's an odd thing because you're, you're in that event arc of time observing aspects of that, but there is no interaction with it. There is only observance, right? You're observing, it's observing. How it's observing, I don't know. I can only say that perhaps it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's a parallel perception to us maybe in a moment of daydreaming or maybe in a moment of waking from sleep where we suddenly, you know, I don't know, maybe that's like a deja vu or maybe it's like, uh, you know, somewhere where you have a premonition of something or uh, you feel like something's looking at you or, you know what I mean? There are all kinds of descriptors that could fit that. We don't know where in time, which by the way is a, an illusion. It's from a quantum mechanical perspective, it, it doesn't exist. It's not a cosmological law. So it, it destroys equations when you try to put those in, particularly like Stephen Hawking uh, in his efforts to try to reverse engineer the universe. Uh, and I think probably in many years, in the remaining years of his life, he spent working with his associates to try to develop the equation to bring the universe back from its theoretical distance by calculating the measurement and speed with which galaxies are separating, right? And or other planetary bodies to try to reverse engineer the universe back to a point of singularity. That was a big undertaking, right? Mm -hmm. Worked for years on that. And his, uh, his assistants were constantly, at least for two years, as I understand it, trying to get him to remove time from the equation, which he refused to do because he was just certain that you know, time had to play a factor in this. If you're, you know, for measuring things and, a and establishing a speed, it has to be part of the equation. Now, I certainly am not privy to the equation, but I am privy to the story that they said, you've got to stop it. We, can, we have to pull this, this variable of time out of the equation because as soon as we get back to a certain point, because time is not real, it's a human construct, right? right? 
it jams up what we're trying the math. We can't make it work because things are becoming too compressed. So that can't be in there. I think he finally relented. And I don't know that they ever were successful before he passed away. But I, I do think I read in one of his books, like A Brief History of Time, I think I remember reading him acquiescing to that and saying, yeah, remove it. Because actually, you're right. It's not a, it's not a cosmic law. It's not actually something that governs the universe. So yeah, let's get it out. I don't know, again, if they ever were successful in getting it all the way back to an established mathematical proof, but I know they're working on it. I'm really anxious. I'm eager, not anxious, to see when they get that done. Because again, it goes back to this idea of if it, if it came from something, if, it, if a, another dimension, shall we say, another universe spewed it out. And now theories are surrounding around like, maybe that's a black hole. You know, maybe that's why black holes are consuming, right? And, and, and it disappears. Perhaps it's just a theory. Perhaps it's consuming matter from this universe and, and energy and et cetera, and pushing it into the next universe, which is why it goes into this concept of quantum foam, right? And somebody like Deepak Chopra will say, as is the micro, as, so is the macro. So it could be, there could be dimensions of universes after universe after universe after universe out there. Uh, it certainly would not surprise most uh, quantum mechanical, you know, most quantum physicists. It, it wouldn't for that to happen. And it would certainly add new understanding and dimension to the idea that we are omnipresent and that we have access to the omnipresent waveform of everything. There's no reason why there would be a boundary that would stop the waveform expression of something. Perhaps there is, but I, there's no so, evidence so, or study to say it would. I think that's a great segue for the next, the next episode. With that, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Morehouse. Please join us again, everyone, in the next episode where we're going to talk about the physics of remote viewing. Thanks. Thank you, folks. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.